Titus 3, 4 through 7. Remember the simple assertion is found in verse 5. He saved us. Then I identified four things we learn about this salvation from the text in verse 4. When salvation was accomplished or the historical accomplishment of salvation, which would be come from the words, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. I think that is looking back at the incarnation itself, the accomplishment of redemption, and then what salvation is based on, uh, in these words, negatively considered, not by works of righteousness which we have done, and then positively, but according to his mercy. So we learn, first of all, when salvation was accomplished, the incarnation. Secondly, what salvation is based on, not our works, but on divine mercy. Thirdly, how salvation is applied, that's verses, right at the end of verse 5 and verse 6, or the personal application of salvation. So you see kind of the order here. The fact that God saved us, it's timing, the accomplishment, when his kindness and love appeared. It's basis, what it ain't, what it is, not by works, but by mercy. It's application. So we have in this text, I think, redemption accomplished, which is what Christ did for us, and then redemption applied, redemption accomplished and applied. Some of you know that's a title of a somewhat famous book. The application, the application of redemption is by God. The accomplishment of redemption is by God. The whole work of salvation is all God. Salvation is of the Lord, as the prophet says. And then fourthly, we just I just kind of skimmed on this one. What salvation guarantees? We learn that in verse 7. Or the glorious benefits of salvation. Justification and errors according error. H-E-I-R, not E-R-R-O-R. And errors according to the hope of eternal life. And the words are found in verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs. So justification leads to heirship according to the hope of eternal life. What is the content of that which we are heirs of? Eternal life. But now eternal life uh, is... Already and not yet. Do we possess eternal life? Yes. Do we possess eternal life in its fullness? No. At least this better not be it, right? It better be way better than this, and it is. Now, what does it mean for God to, for, uh, God to or for us, to be in the state of having been justified? To justify, in this sense, means to pronounce sinners as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. The holy life of Christ is credited to our account. That's why this morning and every Lord's Day, when we look at one of the commandments, 
I end up concluding we're all guilty, lost or saved, but there was one among us, okay, who was not guilty of these things. I mentioned a book title earlier today, earlier this afternoon, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Some of you have read that book. A few of you might have read it more than once. The author was a professor at Westminster Seminary, excuse me, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And yes, I am looking at my phone because I got a text this morning via Western Union. I'm, I'm kidding. This was sent on December 29, 1936 from Bismarck, North Dakota to Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. It was written by J. Gresham Machen to John Murray, the author of Redemption Accomplished and Applied. We're considering what it means to be justified. It means to be pronounced righteous by virtue of the righteousness of Christ. How do we parse the righteousness of Christ? What do we mean by that? We mean his obedience, his obedience from womb to tomb. Even his obedience in receiving uh, the justice of God. Some people have titled that his passive obedience, where he receives what we deserve uh, willingly. But also, he also lived each day of his life, every breath of his life, in perfect compliance with the law of God. That's uh, distinguished from the passive obedience. That's called the active obedience. So let's go back to J. Gresham, Machen. Again, some of you know what, knows what the, know what this says. He's on his deathbed. He died, well, I think he was 39 years old. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Stop. No hope without it. Stop. Not, not stop it, but it's a, it's a telegraph through Western Union. And here is this dying theologian, and he writes a brief note to another theologian, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. There's no justification without it. It's sad. Some Protestants, uh, over the years since the Protestant Reformation, although their tradition, their Protestant tradition once held to this active, passive obedience kind of a motif, uh, they threw off the active and just believed in the passive obedience. The only thing that gets credited to us is the benefits of Christ receiving the wrath of God for us so that uh, there's no, no condemnation for, for us. But what about this righteousness that's still required of it, us? Um, some people, unfortunately, have said, well, that's our responsibility. Jesus takes the juice, gets the death penalty, but we, we got to do the other part. Mr. Machen knew otherwise. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Because God doesn't require, God doesn't lower the bar. Oh, now that Christ came, let me lower the bar. Some of you can, you might make it. The bar's still way up there. Okay, so it's like I've said before, we're way worse than we realize. God's way better than we know. We get the whole life of Christ as righteousness procuring 
credited to our account? What gets, what gets credited to Christ? Our guilt, our just liability to punishment. He died instead of sinners dying under divine justice. He got what we deserved. We get what we don't deserve. That's justification. The demands of God's law and justice are satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. We have a righteous standing before God because of Christ's righteousness, because of Christ's law-abiding life from the womb to the tomb. And our guilt, our liability to punishment, was exhausted by Christ when he died as a curse for us on the cross. That having been justified by his grace. Those are wonderful words. Ah, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One has not sinned and therefore he didn't fall short of that glory. He got to what we call a quality of life better than Adam's created state what we call now eternal life, and he confers it upon us. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrays, with joy shall I lift up my head. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be my plea. Jesus hath lived so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ, no hope without it, hath died for me. We, we, we sing that twofold obedience uh, of our Lord. Now, this justification is unto, it's by grace, um, unmerited favor from heaven, and it leads us to become errors according to the hope of eternal life. So here's the hope of eternal life. Christ gains it for us. Christ gives it to us, and we are now heirs of it in its full, fullest sense. We're going get, to get it in its fullest sense. All that eternal life means is yours by a gracious, unmerited inheritance. Now, we don't merit the inheritance Somebody else did, though, merit the inheritance. It's a gracious, unmerited by us, inheritance of eternal life. And the way we experience it now is, first, conversion, regeneration, Faith, repentance, union with Christ, adoption, justification, sanctification, okay? Then, absent from the body, present with the Lord, that's another stage in eternal life because when believers die, their souls don't go to punishment. Their souls go to be with Christ, Second Corinthians 5a. And then when the Lord comes, he puts souls back in bodies and causes them to exist in their eternal state of existence. And we experience then what eye has not seen nor ear heard, all that the Lord has 
for those who love him. So when our Lord comes again, we're going to be raised. uh, uh, He'll raise our corruptible body, transforming it into an incorruptible body. How many here feel the corruption of their bodies? There's going to be a time when our bodies are going to be incorruptible and we won't have this wretched shoulder pain that makes me sleep on the left side of my body instead of on both sides. And then my left side gets sore because you're always on it. And yet I can't go on the right side because of the shoulder because my body is corruptible. I got that illustration from a book. So we're going to live forever in a totally renovated both body and soul and not only microcosmically as individuals, but the whole macro universe is going to be renovated, this new heavens and new earth. It's going to be perfected or brought to maturity and it's going to be in a state of incorruptibility. In other words, there can't be a second fall into sin. Somebody might be thinking, well, I thought there are two Adams. Can't the second Adam fall into sin? Nope. And he already didn't and was rewarded with glory, and he's going to take many sons to the same glory that he entered into. And yet, it's even better than the glory that he enters into because when he comes again, he glorifies the universe, basically. The safe and special presence of God will be the saint's highest delight in that state, in that age of existence, in that eschatological state, the age to come in its fullness. No violations of the third commandment. I've said this before. None of us can say, you mean like last week when I didn't violate the third commandment? Sin and sorrow will be no more. Death will be a relic of the past. Heart, soul, thrilling bliss, indescribable joy, an incomprehensible happiness are in store for the heirs of eternal life. We should, that should kind of make us happy. Here's what uh, one of our hymns says. When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, Shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. This is hymn number 600, by the way. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, on the rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, he's describing the judgment, then, Lord, shall I fully know, Not till then how much I owe. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty not my own. When I see thee as thou art. We 
we shall see him as he is. Love thee with unsinning heart. Isn't that a great line? Now we love him with sinning heart. But there's going to come a time. Love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know. Not till then how much I owe. When the praise of heaven I hear. Loud as thunders to the ear. Loud as many waters noise. Sweet as harps melodious voice. Then, Lord, shall I fully know. Not till then how much I owe. He's not finished. I bet you a Calvinist wrote. Who wrote it? John Newton? Oh, Robert Murray McShane. He's a five-point Calvinist, so he has to have a fifth stanza. Here it is. (laughs) Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side. By the Spirit sanctified, teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. An error according to the hope of eternal life. That having been justified by grace, we may be heirs of eternal life. Life. It's a great passage. Anyway, two contemplations, one for believers. Consider the first words of our text. Remember, the passage I looked at specifically is Titus 3, uh, 4 through 7. Here's the first word in verse 4. Verse 4. But. Let this word remind you of what God has done for you, to you, and what he has made you an heir of. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, you, Ephesian Christians, now Christians, when you were a non-Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. That's a pretty huge thing to contemplate. You remember verse 3, the ugly sins of the believers when they were unbelievers. But he saved us so that even when the pressures of life and the pressures of serving God in this sin-cursed world seem to be drowning us, we should recall these words, but God. Some of you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is, famous British preacher in the earlier part of the 20th, early to mid-20th century. Apparently he has got this famous sermon, But God, on Ephesians uh, 2, 4, or 5, whatever it is. Anybody ever heard it? I haven't. You have heard it? Okay, I, I haven't heard it, but maybe someday you can go listen to it. He's, he's, he's on the internet. But God, um, which tells us, you know, the apostle uses the same language here in Colossians, in a, Titus 3. Paul realized that unless heaven intervened, we're doomed. Not just unless heaven intervened in the fullness of time, God sending a son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem, redemption accomplished. Not simply that. Paul recognized that the accomplishment of redemption needed to be 
applied redemption as well, right? The one takes God, the other takes God as well. Both of them require divine power, both the incarnation and uh, both redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Here we were sinners, but God saved us. The historical accomplishment of this salvation, the sufferings and glory of Christ. The existential, you like that word, or personal subjective application of the benefits of Christ, my free will. Somebody boo me. Boo. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. All reasons why the words, but when the fullness of, when the, 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 the kindness and love of God appeared, God saved us. So understanding our plight and understanding God's solution should make us, to the degree that we understand both plight and solution, both guilt and grace, to the degree that we understand those properly and the deeper we understand them, in theory at least, we should be more grateful, right? So how about unbelievers? Any consideration or uh, contemplation for them? Yes. Consider the first word of our text, but you remember above verse 4, in verse 3, the ugly sins of the now Christians when they were non-Christians? Even unbelievers should take that to heart. The apostle says, but in the midst of these people being like this, God acted. God did something. God moved. God came down. God caused the incarnation. God caused the sufferings and glory of the incarnate Son of God. God brought, God wrought in the incarnation. God the Son wrought according to his human nature righteousness for sinners, both in the fact that he obeyed the law of God from womb to tomb and the fact that he received the just consequences of our sins. Um, Active and passive obedience of Christ. Don't leave earth without it. There you go, Mr. Machen. But God saved us, says this text, about believers, but unbelievers can hear it. Here is God saving unworthy sinners. God saves people like the ones described in verse 3. He doesn't save any other type of people. He saves bad people. He saves sinful people. He saves guilty people. He forgives them of their sin. He wipes their sins away. He, he washes them of their guilt. He, he cleanses them from all their un righteousness. We don't cleanse ourselves. We don't get like a, a metal, what do you call those things, thingy that my wife has, and go, you know what, I got some pretty deeply ingrained sins on my soul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them off with a metal brush. Yeah, that thing. This is not our work. This is God's work. 
He commands all people to believe in Jesus for full and complete salvation from all your sinful ways, from all your guilty stains, and their inevitable end. What's the inevitable end of unforgiven sins and uncleansed stains? Yeah, full and complete, eternal, divine justice, which you don't want. You get complete salvation from all your sinful ways and their inevitable end, the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So this passage would tell unbelievers, see here that God is merciful. In the midst of sinners sinning, God sends his son. In the midst of sinners sinning, God blesses his word and brings the benefits of his son to unworthy sinners. 2,000 years after the accomplishment of redemption. You see, the accomplishment was a historical fact. The application has been going on for an awful long time. There are not more accomplishments of redemption. There's only one, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. There are millions, hopefully billions, of, in, of individual application of the redemption won by Christ over the history of the world. Here, uh, the words of Isaiah, uh, come and buy without money. Remember that? Without money, it's like, well, how do you buy without money? It's got to be a metaphor, right? has to mean something like, um, this is freely offered. You don't like say, okay, God, I'll do my three-fifths, and then you get your two-fifths, or four-fifths and one-fifth, or you do your four-fifths, and I'll do the... It's like, no, God's done five-fifths of it. Matter of fact, he's done six-fifths of it. No, that doesn't make sense. Five-fifths of the whole thing. Salvation is of the Lord. And now the means God uses to get it to your soul is, first of all, hearing it through the ear hole from a preacher like me. And then he does that thing only God can do. Preachers can say, parents can say, Lost, uh, saved friends can say gospel things, okay? But only God can hook the soul and draw it in. God is merciful, and the gospel is his merciful sound going out from my voice. The good news that believing sinners are saved... And once saved, we can say, are in the state now of having been justified by grace. And also because justification involves the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And because the righteousness of Christ actually procured or earned a quality of life better than certainly our fallen state, but even better than Adam's fallen, uh, created state. We are therefore heirs of a quality of life better than Adam's, certainly better than ours, heirs of eternal life. Uh, 
Yeah, so that's how I'm going to end. Praise God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We want it to work its way by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, drilling down deep into our souls, putting in our minds what ought to be there from it, and causing it to bear fruit in our heads and hearts, in our lives and on our lips. We are so far from where we ought to be, certainly way far from what we will be one day, but far away from what we ought to be. But we do have it in us by your grace to want to be better Christians, to be louder and more consistent testifiers to lost people in our lives of the gospel of Christ. Help us. And strengthen our souls through the supper as well as we see the word, see these visible signs of gospel truths, and taste that the Lord is good. Bless, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.